Hi, and welcome to another session of Christianity versus World Religions. My name is Sharon Black, and I'm temporarily teaching the Sisters Sunday School class through this study. We're at Anchor Bible Church in Hull, Georgia. My husband, Barry Black, is the pastor, so if you have any questions as we go through this study, please feel free to email him at barry at anchorbible.org if you would like me to send you the the fill-in-the-blank notes or any of the things I've been giving the ladies in the class in person on Sundays. I'll be happy to send those to you. The curriculum source for this course is Understanding the Times, a survey of competing worldviews by Jeff Myers and David Noble out of Summit Ministries in Colorado. If you're a homeschooler, homeschool mom, um, this curriculum is excellent. It is designed actually to be a 36-week study for high schoolers in a homeschool setting um, or a Christian school setting. So I highly recommend this um, curriculum if you are interested in digging deeper. I'm only doing a few chapters from it and adding in some other sources. So today we're going to be talking about secularism, formerly known as secular humanism. It's been shortened to secularism. Um, Before we get started with that, I want to do a quick review. First of all, again, we're looking at the six major worldviews, the six worldviews that that encompass um, many of the world religions but we're, we're starting big picture. There are six major worldviews in the world. So what is a worldview? It's a pattern of ideas, beliefs, convictions, and habits that help us to make sense of God, the world, and our relationship to God and the world. As we go through each of the worldviews, I, I taught you the truth test that also comes out of this curriculum. But the truth test, we run each worldview through it to see if it, if it stands up to the truth test. It has four steps. The test of reason, the test of the outer world, the test of the inner world, and the test of the real world. First of all, the test of reason. Can it be logically stated and defended? For example, you can say, I don't believe in gravity, but you can jump off a building and find out that gravity still exists even though you don't choose to believe in it. That doesn't stand up to the test of reason. It's not true. The second test, part of the truth test, is the test of the outer world. Is there some external corroborating evidence to support it? For example, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, If Christ be not risen, we are of all men most pitiable. In other words, you should feel the most sorry for us. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our whole faith is based on a lie. Um, But it's not because in addition to God's word teaching us about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is a plethora of historical evidence and support that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead um, in many historical sources. The third test of truth or the third part of the truth test is the test of the inner world. Does it adequately address the human experience, our feelings? Um, God has given us a conscience. We have a sense. As human beings, we do have a sense of right and wrong. Now, the Bible does teach that as our, um, if, if we go deeper and deeper and deeper into sin, that our conscience be- can become seared, and that is possible. But in general, because we do have a conscience, does it adequately address what we know is right and wrong? And the example I gave is from from many centuries old uh, cultures that used to sacrifice babies. I don't know if there are any cultures now that still do that. There may be, but there are 
were religions where they would sacrifice their babies, throw them in the sacred river, or lay them in the arms of a, of a carving of a god and then burn them as a sacrifice. We know it is morally repugnant to kill a, a baby. And so that belief does not hold up to that part of the truth test, the test of the inner world. It is morally repugnant. Um, and then the fourth is the test of the real world. When you take this worldview or this belief and you run it through the truth test and, and when you apply the consequences of this belief in any given cultural situation, are the consequences good or are they bad? Now today we're going to start secularism and, and one of the, the sessions right after that will probably be Marxism. And when we get to that, look at all of the countries in human history that have adopted that worldview. Marxism is a religious belief. It is a worldview. It is a philosophy. It's not just a system of government. When applied in a given real world context, it has been a disaster. There is no setting in which Marxism has been carried out in which it did not result in the deaths of millions of people. So it doesn't pass the truth test. All right, so we've reviewed what a, what a worldview is. We've reviewed the truth test. Let's quickly review Christianity and Islam, and then we're going to get to secular humanism today. I'll try to go quickly. It's the teacher in me. I like to review. So we looked at Christianity first because the whole purpose of this study is not to make you better at arguing with someone. It is to equip Christians to understand more deeply what we believe and then to equip you to go out into the world and share your faith with others so that you are able to do that with boldness and with clarity. So we started with Christianity as one of the six major worldviews. There are two million people in the world right now who claim to be Christian. Now, only God knows their hearts. I doubt that all two billion of those people um, have our Bible believing with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but they may be cultural Christians. However, that's the statistic we have to work with. Um, so, as Christians, these are the things we believe. God created everything, yet He is personal. He revealed Himself through nature, His creation. That's called general revelation. He revealed himself through the scriptures, his word, the Bible. He directly gave it to us and revealed himself. That's called special revelation. Human beings are sinful and fallen. God wants a relationship with us and came to pay for the sin we could not pay for ourselves. Jesus is God. He is God's son clothed in humanity, incarnated, but he is God. He died, he rose again, he made it possible for us to have a relationship with God and made it possible for us to have eternal life after this one. So Christianity is a worldview that answers all of life's big questions in a satisfactory way. It answers who are we, why are we here, how did we get here, where do we go when we die, the things that everyone asks um, Christianity answers. And it passes all four levels of the truth test. The second worldview we looked at was Islam. It's a theistic worldview. In other words, they also believe in one God. But let me pause here and emphasize that um, there's a, a false understanding out there. And, and maybe when you listening to this, maybe you have this belief, but it is not biblical 
to believe that everyone worships the same God with just a different name. That is not a biblical concept. Allah is nothing like the God of the Bible. They are not the same God. Um, wanted to make sure I made that point. So Islam is a theistic worldview centered on the life of the prophet Muhammad and derives its understanding of the world through the teachings of the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sunnah. There are three different bodies of writing, the Quran being the, the primary one. And I apologize if you're listening to this podcast and you do have any kind of a background in the Muslim faith. I may not pronounce all of these words correctly. I don't have a, a good frame of reference for pronunciation of some of the words. So the list of things that you have to do to be Muslim, that you have to believe to be Muslim. There is the confession of faith, that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. That's called the Shahada. There is prayer. Five times per day facing Mecca. Men go to the mosques on Friday. Almsgiving, 2.5% of your annual income to the poor. Fasting during Ramadan. Pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in a lifetime. And then for a small percentage of Muslims, jihad. But it is not held by all Muslims. And that is compelling non-Muslims to submit. So Islam as a worldview answers some of life's big questions, but it focuses on works rather than a relationship. In Islam, there is no relationship with Allah. It's just, let's do the things, let's check the boxes, and we're Muslim. Um, there's also the issue of when you die. There's no assurance of any kind of afterlife of where you go to heaven or hell. It's all based on good works outweighing bad works, etc. And there are a number of parts of Islam that do not pass the truth test. So, up until now, the two worldviews of the six that we've looked at are considered theistic. They're worldviews that believe in one God. The next three worldviews we're going to look at are atheistic, atheistic. And all three of the next three worldviews we look at believe that there is no God. That is one of the main linchpins, underpinnings of these next three worldviews, including secularism. Then the final worldview we'll look at is polytheistic, and we'll talk more about that when we get there. So, we're moving on to secularism, um, but let's remember the memory verses that we have focused on so far. We need to hide those in our hearts. We need to keep writing them on the bathroom mirror or putting them on our steering wheel, wherever it is that you put things so that you can remember them. Sticky notes, I have sticky notes everywhere. The first one is Colossians 2.8. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. Colossians 2.8. Another memory verse that we've looked at, especially the, the week or two that we looked at Christianity, was Romans 10.9 from the King James, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10.9. Uh, one of the things that came up in the Sunday school class as we started examining Christianity was what do you have to believe to be a Christian? And we realized there are so many doctrines that are very essential and important to Christianity. But the bottom line is God's word says, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we're saved. That's it. It's just so simple 
that even a child can come to know Christ. And we don't want to be guilty of making it so complicated that we convolute it and that we make it so difficult to understand that someone doesn't come to Christ as a result. So we have this verse to remind us that that faith in Jesus Christ is a very simple thing. It's not as complex as we are uh, guilty of making it at times. Everything else can be learned after you become a Christian. You can dig into the doctrines and study your Bible and grow in grace, grow in knowledge, grow in your faith. But all you have to believe to become a Christian is that Jesus is God, that he died for your sins. You'll be saved. All right. One new verse, and this one's going to be applied for the next three worldviews, but it's Psalm 14.1. And I have it written down as Psalm 14.1a, which means the first half of the verse. The Bible says, The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. For you to start out with the premise that there cannot possibly be a God to refuse to acknowledge that there could be a God is very foolish. God says you're a fool. And of course, that's not in a derogatory manner. We want people who don't believe in God to realize their error and come to know Jesus Christ. So let's remember that verse as we proceed on into secular humanism. So what is secularism or secular humanism? It is an atheistic and materialistic worldview that advocates a public society free from the influence of religion. Of course, we understand as we examine secularism that itself is a religion in itself, but um, those who are secularists would like you to think that they're um, very unbiased and that they are very balanced and that the religious people who believe in God are the ones who are dogmatic and extremists. Excuse me, I needed a little water. So here are some of the basic doctrines of secularism. The first is atheism. That is the belief that there is no transcendent influence or deity. Human beings are all there is. Along with that, they believe in monism. You understand mono means one. So monism is that human beings are only one part, that we are just physical. We have no soul. We have no spirit. We're just physical creatures, and that's it, monism. The next part of that, and these three kind of go together, there is no God or deity, that we are only one part and have no soul or spirit. And the next part of that is materialism, and that's not the way you would normally use it in uh in everyday context, materialism, not in the sense of having a lot of stuff. Materialism in this case means the material world is all there is. There is no afterlife. There is no spiritual realm. There are no angels or demons or spirits or any of that. And there's nothing after this. You live and then you're gone. That's materialism. So atheism, there is no God. Monism, humans are only one part. We have no soul or spirit. We are only body materialism, the idea that the physical material world is all there is. Then there's evolution. It is an underpinning. It is probably what I would call the linchpin other than atheism of the next three worldviews we'll be looking at. But evolution says we are higher forms of animals and we continue to evolve. Thoughts are just sparks from your brain and nothing more. 
The next is moral relativism. If you are truly only a higher form of an animal, then nothing is immoral. You're just acting on your instincts and doing what animals do. And and there's no spiritual ramification or no afterlife to worry about or no God to answer to. So you just do what you feel. That's your instinct. You're just an animal and nothing really matters. So um, secularists believe that human beings are basically good by nature and that everything we do is okay or moral because we're just living based on our instincts. And then there's empiricism. Science is the only authority. For a secularist, secular humanist, science is the only authority. It's the only way to know anything. That's called empiricism. So you have atheism, monism, materialism, evolution, moral relativism, and empiricism. That's a lot of isms. Those are the six underpinnings of secularism. And for us to say that that is not a religion would be fooling ourselves. Let's talk about the history of secularism. I'm going to go very quickly. This is not uh, to bog us down in the history, but just to give you a quick broad brush. Secularism is rooted in the 1700s in an um, ideology called deism. Um, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin were both deists. They believed that there was a supreme being. They believed there was a God and a creator out there, but they didn't adhere to a particular faith. They didn't really believe in the God of the Bible. And their idea was that this supreme being out there somewhere kind of wound up the world and went fishing, walked away and left us to our own devices to figure things out. But not a personal God who's involved in our daily lives and knows our thoughts and feelings, etc. So Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, other thinkers of the day in the early American period were deists. Of course, um, there were a number of very strong Christians in the early days of, of the United States, but we did have some movers and shakers who were deists. Uh, Moving into the 1800s, you had a lot of philosophers and writers who kind of started moving toward this secular humanism idea. They sort of moved away even from the idea that there was a supreme being. And by the time we get to the 20th century, secular humanism, secularism had infiltrated America's universities. Um, In 1933, a group of professors got together and and wrote Um, a declaration of their belief system called the Humanist Manifesto One. In 1973, they revised it in 2000 again. I want to talk a little bit more about that. Um, So in in the 1930s, I believe 1933, a group of atheistic and agnostic professors, including John Dewey, who is considered to be the father of the American public education system, um, they all signed this. And its goal was to develop to develop a new religious movement based on science to replace the dogmatic quote-unquote old attitudes promoted by theistic religions like Christianity. Um, It was updated in 1973 and signed by hundreds of prominent scholars, including Francis Crick, an early pioneer in DNA research, and a famed psychologist B.F. Skinner. And then it was updated again in 2000. So, don't take my word for this. I would like for you to go look this up yourself. You can find this online at AmericanHumanist.org. I found it interesting. Their logo says, American Humanist Association, Good, 
without God. That's the logo of the organization. It's at the top of the, the page on the website. So you can read the Humanist Manifesto for yourself. Um, one, two, and three, I believe, are all on there in full text and see what some of their goals are. And I'll mention some in just a moment. I do want to differentiate, give you the terminology, the difference between an atheist and an agnostic because we'll throw those words around a lot for the next few sessions, and I want to make sure you understand what they mean. Don't want to belabor the point, but I want to make sure we define all our terminology. So an atheist is someone who adamantly, actively believes there is no God, no God, big G, no little God, no supernatural, nothing. They adamantly and actively believe that. An agnostic is someone who believes there probably isn't a God or big G or little g, supernatural, but they also believe it's impossible to know one way or the other to be sure about that. So they call themselves an agnostic. In my opinion, most people, even the ones who call themselves atheists, most of them are probably agnostic. Um, but the atheists, as far as the ones who signed the Humanist Manifesto and, and other more vocal members of the Humanist Society and those who are Marxists and those who are postmodernists, um, there are, of course, in the, the movers and shakers and writers and thinkers of those particular worldviews are atheists. They are adamantly and actively believing that there is no God. So just so you know the difference between an atheist and an agnostic, I think that's important for us to know. So in 2006, there was a study called Politics of the American Professorate Survey, and they found that 22.9% were either atheist or agnostic, 39.4% were sure that God exists, and the percentages differed by departments. There were one in three in the humanities, social science, or computer science, one in two in the physical or biological sciences. So the chance of having a professor who believes in God are two out of three. However, only half of those claim to be Christian. And those who claim to be Christian, only one in 20 believe the Bible is true. So if you take that study and you apply it just to one university, which is the one that they applied it to in 2006 in this study. There are 1,100 professors at Princeton. 21 out of 1,100 professors would be Christian and oriented toward conservative values. So if you're a parent or a grandparent and you're thinking about your child, be aware that if you've raised your child in church and um, may or may not have sent them to Christian school or homeschooled them or whatever. But if you're sending them off to college, you need to understand that a very large percentage of professors are humanists, secular humanists, and a very tiny percentage of their professors are going to have any um, sympathy or connection with, with your child's worldview. So be aware of that. It's, it's important as you send them off to make sure that they are spiritually prepared, not just with, you know, the sheets and the microwave and the ramen noodles, but they need to be prepared spiritually for college or those professors are going to rip them to shreds. Moving on. Sorry about that. Um, I do challenge you while we're on that subject. Uh, I do challenge you every single state 
has a Department of Education, and there's a website that you can go to. It's a government website, and you can look up the state standards that your child is supposed to be learning from kindergarten all the way up through college. There are state standards that are published and are supposed to be followed. So if you really want to to deeply understand what your child is learning or supposed to be learning in school, you should look up those standards because uh, especially in the area of science and another area that you need to really keep an eye on is English language arts. You need to watch their history because history has been revised. And I'm not just saying that from a political perspective. I'm saying that because the secular humanists have rewritten history. So it's very important for you to keep an eye on what your child is learning in school all the way up through college. Um, The president of the Humanist Association estimates that 12 to 18 percent of Americans are secularists. I would venture to guess it's even higher than that. Pew Research Center found that one-third of 18 to 29-year-olds claim no religious affiliation, which would put them in the secularist camp. That would be 33% of the 18 to 29-year-olds in our country. A lot to think about. I feel like negative Nancy right now, Um, but there is hope, so we'll we'll get there. From the textbook that we're using, page 85 from Understanding the Times by Jeff Myers and David Noble, it says, Secularists are fond of labeling Christians as dogmatic, but they neglect to mention that believing life to have risen from non-life is as sacred a doctrine to secularists as the doctrine of the Incarnation is to Christians. That's on page 85. So, in the worldview of secularism, secular humanism, their general revelation would actually technically be the same as ours, and that would be the physical world. However, they would root that solely in science, whereas we look at it as God's creation. Secularists do have a special revelation in addition to just science, and that would be the thinking and writing of certain philosophers along the way. You're going to recognize some of these names. Um, As you've gone through school, you've probably heard of some of these people. A couple of them, I think, are still living, the last two. Thomas Paine, Frederick Nietzsche, Sigmund Freud, John Dewey, Charles Darwin, Bertrand Russell, Simone Bouvier, Abraham Maslow, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hutchins, Paul Kurtz. So the thinking and writing of those particular individuals has furthered the cause of secular humanism. And as someone who is currently employed as a public school teacher, I can tell you that the teacher education programs, the training class, the classes you take in college to become a teacher, you're bombarded with those thinkers um, in addition to others. But some of the names I just read, John Dewey, Abraham Maslow, those are people you have to read and study and act like they're the best thing since sliced bread. And it's a little scary, to be honest. Um, So... One of the ways that secular humanists are have infiltrated, and, and really they have for many, many, many years, this is not a new thing at all, but there has been a lot of propaganda over the years used on Americans. Um, I found this very interesting quote. I believe this was in the text. I'm not 100% sure. Um, I have this in my notes. But in 2001, 
there was a study and uh, about propaganda and its impact on people. And it says, mass suggestion or influence through the manipulation of symbols and the psychology of the individual with the ultimate goal of having the recipient of the appeal, meaning of the propaganda, to come to voluntarily accept this position as if it were his or her own. To hear American citizens spouting a certain way, certain certain things that they've heard in the news and they've heard in commercials and they've seen on sitcoms and they've seen in movies. And after a while, they come to think, oh, this is my idea. When it's not their idea at all, they've been practically brainwashed with propaganda. Um, it is very important to secularists that they present themselves as unbiased and neutral and they present Christians as biased and extremist. Notice language that is used. Notice how Christians are presented in the public square. Um, I don't think I shared this with the Sunday school class uh, when we did this particular lesson. Um, when I was in high school, my best friend Jenny and I went to the movies to see uh, Footloose. This is going to make me uh, tell my age a little bit. This was the first Footloose that came out with Kevin Bacon and Laurie Singer. They did a remake a few years ago, but this was the original one. And Jenny and I went to see it probably 11 or 12 times. And I loved the movie. I liked the music. It was super popular. Kevin Bacon was super popular. And you know, I was dancing. It was a teenager movie. However, the one of the main characters' dad was the town preacher, and he was presented as this straight-laced, bigoted person. He had banned dancing, so they couldn't have their high school prom in town. They had to go over the city limits to go have their prom. Um, and you see people burning books. They had a book burning outside the library. And I was very offended, even though I loved the, the movie, you know, in general and the, the teenager part of it and the dancing and all of that. I was offended by the way that the Christians in the show were presented. And I've thought over the years so many times where I've seen movies or TV shows where Christians are presented as bigoted and biased and extremist. That is propaganda. That is exactly the, what the secularists want you to see and think and feel because they want a public square that is free from any kind of religion. Um, and they're using ter terminology and they're using propaganda and they've infiltrated the school system. So um, an additional verse from Psalm 14, 1a, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, is Psalm 10, 4. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Psalm 10.4. Put that one in your, in your, uh, on your bathroom mirror too. Add that to your list of verses. So I've been encouraging you as we go along in this study to journal. Just journal. Every time I mention something or give you a verse or a list of doctrines that a particular worldview holds, I would like for you just to be journaling your response to all of this. I want to try to give you some thought questions each week. Of course, be reading your Bible most, most importantly of all. But in addition to that, please be journaling and just kind of process the things that, that we're talking about. And in this case, this week, 
I would like for you to think back in your own schooling or for your children or grandchildren, depending on your age. Have you been running into instances of Christianity being marginalized or portrayed as evil? How about in movies and TV shows? Uh, particularly with the homosexual, I've been, there's a commercial, it's an ad that's been running on TV that has lumped LGBTQ people and um, immigrants and women and a bunch of different supposedly marginalized people groups together. And then they say, Jesus gets us. And they make it sound as if mainline Christians are the ones who are, you know, subjugating them or pushing them down or hating on them. Um, and, and that's running as an ad on TV right now. It's just shocking to me. The boldness of the propaganda it has, has really increased over the years. So I want to encourage you. This, this sounds like a lot of, of darkness and gloom and doom, but y'all, we live in a dark world and it's getting darker. I believe Jesus is coming back and Christians, we've got to share our faith. We've got to be prepared and we live in a secularist culture. They have indeed taken over the public square in many ways and they have marginalized Christianity. So we need to be loving. We need to be kind, but we need to be bold and we need to understand what they believe so we know how to talk to them. So don't walk away feeling like gloom and doom. Make sure that as you walk away from this podcast and move on to your the rest of your day or your evening, that you remember that we serve a God who's bigger than all of this and he's got this, but he uses us and we can't be silent and we can't be afraid to share our faith. So go out there and share your faith. Be a light. Be the salt. Be that person in someone's life. You may be the only Christian that they ever meet and you need to be prepared to share your faith. So I encourage you to do that in the, uh, with the Holy Spirit's help. And I hope that some of the things that we're learning in this series will help you to be bolder in your faith. So I hope that you will be a blessing to others and that God will bless you. And I'll talk to you next time at the Anchor Bible Church podcast for the Sister Sunday School class.